0: Welcome to Radio Free Culture from WFMU, where we examine issues at the intersection of digital media and the arts. My name is Cheyenne Homan. And in this episode, we'll be talking with Michael Weinberg, who serves as the IP and general counsel for a 3D printing company. We'll be discussing controversy and intellectual property issues surrounding 3D printed guns, records, and of course, Left Shark.
1: I am Michael Weinberg. I am currently the IP and general counsel for a 3D printing company called Shapeways. And before that, I was vice president at Public Knowledge, which is a public interest advocacy organization in Washington, D.C. It does a lot of kind of tech policy work.
0: Cool. So how did you get into 3D printing? <laughs>
1: um, I got into 3D printing while I was at Public Knowledge. And Public Knowledge does a lot of work on online copyright and intellectual property issues. And so... Five or six years ago now, we had a guy on staff actually named Alex Curtis who was saying this 3D printing thing is really interesting, and it kind of looks like the Internet in the sense that it it could potentially give a lot of people the ability to to kind of create and distribute, and so we should think about it. And we were all like, yeah, we should think about it, but we didn't really know what that meant. And um, we had this white paper. We were like, okay, this is what we're going to do. like We're going to put out this white paper that just sort of introduces people to all of the kind of IP concepts, the copyright and the trademark and the patent around 3D printing. Currently, whatever, we're at public knowledge, we're doing all this online copyright work, and the rules that were written for online copyright were kind of written at a time where most of the people who were online weren't paying attention. So the question is sort of, what do we wish people had done in 1993 or 1994 to make our online copyright work easier, and how can we do those things today to make 3D printing policy advocacy 10 years from now easier. Uh, so that's sort of how, how I got into it and how the organization got into it. And since then, you know, we put out a bunch of white papers. We do this, this policy conference every year, 3DDC, and a lot of it has just been kind of talking to people and thinking about it and trying to get a little bit ahead of, of what's going on, just a step or two.
0: <laughs> Tell me about Shapeways.
1: Yeah, so Shapeways is super cool. I just started there a couple weeks ago. The reason that a lot of people know about 3D printing today and for the last couple years is because there's been this explosion of desktop printers. Um, There's also this industry of people who have five- and six-figure 3D printers, these giant industrial 3D printers. And so what Shapeways is really set up to do is to give everybody access to these giant industrial printers that can print in all these crazy materials so they can print in metal and they can print in full color. It can can do all this stuff. Uh, And so if you want, you can upload, you can design a file and you can upload it to the Shapeways website and then it can be 3D printed, you know, in whatever you want and we'll send it to you. And the other thing that you can do is if you're a designer, you can upload a bunch of designs and you can open a shop. It's just print on demand. So we have a lot of designers who like it because, there's no, there's no inventory for them. There's very low risk. If nobody buys it, they don't have a bunch of them sitting in their garage. And if a lot of people buy it, great. They get a nice flow of checks from, from their buyers and from Shapeways.
0: Let's go back a little bit to the history of 3D printing and kind of why it's in the state that it is right now with intellectual property and also just as an industry. So like, how did it get started?
1: It's sort of an interesting story. So 3D printing is 25 years old or so, probably more than that. And what happened was in the, in the early and mid 80s, people started developing the first generation of 3D printers and they patented the technology and they really focused, those early companies really focused on the kind of commercial industrial. So if you were in a big engineering firm or a design firm or a big engineering lab at a university, anytime in the last 20 years, you probably had access to a 3D printer, but they were expensive and they were sort of a niche. And what happened is five or six years ago, the initial patents on the kind of core technology began to expire. And so a bunch of people who were kind of like, well, yeah, I would love a 3D printer, but I don't have $20,000 or $100,000, they started connecting to each other on the internet. And they said, well, what we should do is we should figure out how to build a low-cost 3D printer out of kind of as stock materials as possible. So... The core for this was the, was something called the RepRap Project that was started by a guy named Adrian Bowyer. He's a professor at the University of Bath in the UK. And you saw this community of people come together and say, we want to make printers that are cheap, that can reproduce themselves. So our goal is to make 3D printers that can print as much of themselves as possible, and everything else is as stock as you can get. And so out of that RepRap Project, you saw this explosion of desktop printers, and almost every desktop printer can trace its heritage back to this open-source hardware project that's still going strong, that's still amazing. And so one of the byproducts of these desktop printers, this RepRap project, is all of a sudden 3D printers were in the hands of people, people who just, you know, who were building them themselves or had a couple hundred bucks. And they were all connected to each other over the internet. And so you've just seen this explosion both in the innovation of the technology, and then in the applications, because there's all these people who either had problems that it turns out 3D printing is the solution to, or even when they saw 3D printing, they realized they had a problem they hadn't even noticed before, but they're like, oh wait, 3D printing is a solution to this. And so as you saw the machines get cheaper and more accessible, you also started to see more and more people use them and use them in different ways and those two things have just been feeding off of each other. So it's really great. And it can really be traced back to the expiration of the first couple of patents and then this open source hardware project of the RepRap.
0: When I think about this like evening of the playing field phenomenon, it's sort of the same idea as like when Napster hit the internet, things have become sort of so decentralized and so out of control you know, or regulation, not in a bad way necessarily, but just that You know, there's no way to monitor like what people are actually doing with these. So, can we talk about some of the controversy like around three D printing, like in the hands of the people, and why? Of course,
1: what happens when all of a sudden people can just start making things the way they couldn't before?
0: Make guns and Legos and things. Right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Which one of those do you want to start on? (laughs)
0: Um, Let's Let's start with Legos.
1: Okay. So, and actually, Legos is a really good example thus far lego has a trademark it's lego right and then they have a bunch of blocks their stuff generally isn't protected by copyright uh, because they're useful objects they're just they're not like as a category of things blocks that fit together don't get copyright protection they don't have as much control over their product as music labels do or uh, movie studios do and so what Lego has been pretty good about doing up until now is say, look, we have all these super fans who love our product so much, they're going to model additional things that will be compatible with them. And we, we probably, first of all, don't have a very strong legal case to go after them. But you know, that doesn't stop everyone. So <laughs> they can send scary letters, but generally they haven't sent scary letters. And so they begin to embrace this community and say, great, like, you're fans, we, we like this happening. As long as your use of our trademark doesn't confuse people and make them think that your stuff is from Lego, right? But you can say Lego compatible works with Lego, all those things are fine. Uh, so they're an example of a company that in a different world with a different kind of reaction could have become because they make they make tiny plastic things the plastic that's on all those 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 desktop printers print in the exact same plastic as Lego, they could have been the sort of the Metallica of, (laughs) of, of 3d printing, where they really could have like just started coming after people. And thus far, they haven't done that. And that's a really encouraging sign because it's a sign that there are at least some companies who maybe have learned some lessons from the last 10 or 15 years. It's an encouraging sign. I think it's still early. It's still tentative. At shapeways we just saw a similar deal with Hasbro and My Little Pony and the, the Bronies. You know, there was this huge community of fans who love creating fan art. And Hasbro could have come in and said, we're going to sue you all for copyright infringement and shut you all down. And instead, what they said is, hey, this is a community of people who love our stuff so much that they're taking time to model new stuff. Maybe we should find a way to work with them. And so they did. And you can now get all those. There's all these incredible brony My Little Pony figurines, and people love it. And it's because those companies decided to react in a positive way and maybe learn a little bit of the lessons of history on that.
0: Yeah. So what about firearms? Yeah, so the, the other way. That seems one. like kind of like the opposite end of like, let's collaborate and be okay with this happening.
1: Yeah, so the firearm thing is really was really interesting, actually. So 3D printers are general-purpose machines. They can make everything. And when you put 3D printing in a headline, it gets a lot of clicks. There was this controversy which started about two, two and a half years ago. And it was funny because a lot of people – they saw a 3D-printed gun, and they just sort of, they said, like, new gun, and, the, and this was a concern that they had. And so when I was at Public Knowledge and we were trying to figure out how it all works, we said, okay, we at public knowledge. We don't do gun policy. We don't, we're not involved in it. It's just not in our area of expertise. And so we said, okay, well, you know, what's the real nature of the concern? And we were going to Congress because there were a lot of members of Congress who were saying we need to do something about 3D-printed guns. And we said, what's the nature of the concern? And as far as we could tell, the nature of the concern kind of broke down into two categories. The first category was if people can 3D print guns, they're going to make guns at home. Two things. First of all, people have been making guns at home since probably the beginning, before the beginning of the republic. And the people who do gun policy are well aware of that, right? The ATF has a a series of regulations about gun control policy uh, about ma- making guns at home. And so where for a lot of people who were completely unaware of that, this felt very new when you kind of took a step back and you looked at what was already happening, it's, it wasn't like a novel policy challenge to the people who were focused on it. So we said, okay, and and furthermore, all the th- the first generation 3D printed gun stuff came out of an existing community. There's an online community of people who were using the internet to trade files for, for CNC mills, for computer control milling machines. So you, for, for 10 years before 3D printed guns, you could download a file that would allow you to mill out a gun of me, out of metal, <laughs> basically at home, on a machine that costs you know, close to what a desktop 3D printer would cost. So we said, okay, for people who are concerned about making guns at home, take some time, look at this, and, you know, if we want to have a longer conversation, great, but that conversation is really about home manufacture firearms, not about 3D printing. The other half of the, the gun stuff were people who said, well, they're going to be undetectable firearms. People are going to make guns out of plastic, and we're going to have, you know, people smuggling guns into airports and things like that, which nobody wants. And so for that, we said, okay, but in that situation, your concern isn't that the gun was 3D printed so much as the gun was was undetectable. And at the time, for over a decade, Congress had outlawed undetectable firearms, and it was up for renewal. And so there was a question of, in the new bill, would there be a reference to 3D printing specifically, or would it be more general? And fortunately, we worked with, with Representative Steve Israel's office, who was really pushing the bill, and, and Senator Schumer, who was pushing the bill. We said, look, you know, if you're sitting in an airport and someone has smuggled a gun through security and because and, it's plastic and starts pulling it out and waving it at people, your first thought is not, I wish that person hadn't 3D printed that gun. <laughs> your thought is, that gun is made out of plastic. And so if you go, if you write the bill in a way that singles out a specific method of manufacture, that's not really what you care about. And it's likely that people will just work around that. And so ultimately, we got to a place where the bill that passed was a basically a reauthorization of the Undetectable Firearms Act, which would include a undetectable firearm that was made with a 3D printer, but didn't sort of specifically single out 3D printing, which is, you know, about what, what we would want. And, you know, whether or not the Undetectable Firearms Act should pass is sort of not, <laughs> not, not, not my focus, but, you know, if it was going to pass, it should pass that way.
0: Yeah, and I guess when I think about it, For me, it's, like, two issues, and one is the actual design being distributed. I guess there are already communities that will, like, share these files, but, like, on places like Thingiverse, like, can you find that sort of stuff? Or do they have guidelines about that?
1: Yeah, so a lot of specific sites have guidelines about that. So Thingiverse has guidelines about that. There was a little bit of a controversy around it when they started enforcing it. But, yeah, they have a no-weapons policy. Shapeways has the same thing. Whether or not there are legal reasons that we might or may not make you a weapon, we just make a decision. It's our site. We can sort of decide whatever we want, that guns are a thing that that we don't want there. But the Internet is vast. It is not hard to find. It's not hard to find those files. They're just, you know, a website like Thingiverse has decided that they don't want to be a place that hosts those files. And, again, whether or not that should be available is sort of a question that is distinct from 3D printing.
0: So one, one 3D printing uh, epic tale of copyright <laughs> infringement and uh, new policy, perhaps, is Left Shark. <laughs> the, <laughs> I've been just sort of uh, charmed by because Left Shark was so goofy and like in, in its television debut um, in the Super Bowl and then has like somehow managed to keep showing up in the news like <laughs> for a long time.
1: Yeah. No, I, I mean... I- put out a blog post recently that was basically like Left Shark as an intellectual property 3D printing issue will outlive the half-life of Left Shark the meme by so many orders of magnitude you couldn't even calculate it. But yeah, so, so you know what happened was after Left Shark became internet famous, as Left Shark is wont to do, <laughs> <laughs> a designer basically made a Left Shark figurine and put it up on, on Shapeways and, and we started selling it. And Shapeways got a letter from from the Katy Perry people. And it was sort of saying, you need to take this down. But it was interesting because Shapeways, like any website on the internet that allows people who are not employees of the website to post stuff, is protected under these Digital Millennium Copyright Acts, the DMCA safe harbors. And so essentially the way that it works is A website can host anything that a user uploads. But if a rights holder comes along and sends them a letter and says, I own this and you need to take it down, they take it down, basically no questions asked. But part of that letter, it has to include many things, two important things in the context of Left Shark. One is a testament that says, I swear under penalty of perjury that I own the copyright in this thing, and that this takedown is legitimate. And the letter from the the letter from the Katy Perry people was on fancy letterhead and had lots of cease and desist type language, but didn't actually say that. And the reason it didn't say that is probably because it wasn't true, for all sorts of reasons. Generally speaking, costumes aren't protectable by copyright. Even if they were, it's it's really unlikely that Katy Perry is the copyright holder for for that Love shark costume or that I would be totally impressed if they if even Katy Perry's lawyers were visionary enough to demand a copyright interest in every costume that was up on that stage. Um, and so they were sending a nasty gram and trying to be scary and hoping that it would just sort of they could kind of bluff their way through. And then, so then, fortunately, the diner hired an attorney, got an attorney who's a professor at NYU, Chris Brigman, and basically pushed back and said, this letter is sort of bogus. And so, first of all, wouldn't it be great if you just went away? (laughs) Second of all, if you don't want to go away, great, but you need to come back with something more substantive. And essentially, Katy Perry's people didn't. So the, the left shark went back up on Shapeways. And then, of course... 'Cause the sire could never end. First, Katy Perry's people started tried to apply for a trademark in Left Shark, both in the costume and in the the word left shark. But in the application that they sent to the trademark office, they used the picture of the of the original designer's Left Shark. So they that, which, that picture was protected by copyright, so they probably infringed on his copyright as part of their trademark application. And then, of course, very recently, um, the Patent and Trademark Office, on a provisionary level, um, rejected the trademark application. You know, it may be that Katy Perry's people come back, but one of the reasons that the trademark and the costume was rejected was because the trademark examiner basically said, look... When people see Left Shark, they don't think Katy Perry. They think Left Shark. (laughs) And so it doesn't really identify Katy Perry goods in the marketplace, which is the purpose of trademark. So no, you get nothing. So we'll see. I'm sure there will be many more Left Shark stories. You know, Left Shark is kind of like the monkey selfie of 3D printing IP. (laughs) Um, So there'll be more stories about Left Shark long after Left Shark is interesting to most other people. But yeah, Left Shark saga continues.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm happy to continue reporting on the Left Shark Saga (laughs) in perpetuity. Um, Yeah, so that brings up kind of an interesting question. Like, you know, when you design something, you own the copyright to that design if it's an original design. But how enforceable is it if anybody can print it and call it their own?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean copyright enforcement, IP enforcement online is is hard, right? And there's there's no doubt about it. And so part of the kind of legal and policy question is, is how do you distribute that, that challenge to people? And, you know, by and large, you police the same way you police any other kind of right. But yeah, I mean, your, your question sort of was interesting, because it sets up a deeper question, right? So for a lot of people who are not for very good reasons, have not decided to become kind of copyright attorneys, <laughs> they've learned a lot about copyright in the last 15 years because of things that have happened on the internet. But one of the things that 3D printing does that makes that knowledge challenging to apply is that copyright, you know, is vast, it has tentacles and all sorts of things, but it's limited, and one of the ways that it's limited is copyright doesn't protect useful functional objects, and so, yeah, you know, a left shark figurine is clearly in the protection, in the scope of copyright protection, and so it's, it's just like a song or a movie. But a lot of things that you see coming out of 3D printers, you know, sort of clips and accessories and, and functional objects, they aren't protectable by copyright. And so the people who design them don't necessarily have a copyright interest in them. They might be protectable by patent, but you know, Copyright, you, by creating something, you get a copyright for free automatically for your life plus 70 years. Patent, you have to apply for a patent. It's going to take time and money. So, you know, your average person has a wealth of copyrights, has no patents. And so when you look at 3D printing, a lot of the stuff coming out of the printers is not eligible for copyright protection. And for people who have grown up learning about copyright through Internet things, which are kind of always protected by copyright... That can be hard to get your mind around, and then to make it that much harder, because you know life is complicated, and I apologize. Is that when you think about a song or a photograph, there's not really a distinction between the song and the file that represents the song, or you know, if you think of like a picture and the file that represents the picture, they kind of collapse in on themselves. They are they are of one piece. With three D printing, it may be that copyright treats the object one way and treats the file that represents the object in a different way. And so you have to kind of keep those two things spinning at once. And then the kind of last layer on it is when you're talking about the file, it may matter, it probably does matter, whether the file was created in kind of a CAD environment, a virtual sort of software environment, or if it was created with a 3D scanner. And if you created it with the in the CAD environment, you are much more likely to have a copyright interest in it than if you create it with a 3D scanner. And so copyright on, on the things on the internet is already complicated, <laughs> but 3D printing really kind of explodes it out because there are a lot of questions. You know, when we talk about music online and people remixing it and doing fan art things with it, the first question that people jump to is often either is it fair use. Or is it licensed under some sort of creative commons license? With 3D printing, you have to actually step back a step in that analysis and first ask, is it even protected by copyright in the first place? And that's a question that we sort of assumed the answer to being yes up until now. And so this makes it that much more complicated.
0: Yeah, I guess I hadn't really considered the idea of attaching a creative commons license to a 3D design? Do you know if there's any precedent for that?
1: So there, there is precedent to it. Um, one of the great things about Thingiverse is that you can choose Creative Commons licenses for your designs, which on one hand is great, because Creative Commons licenses are great. But on the other hand, I think in the medium term, it's going to be really confusing for people because there are people who are attaching Creative Commons licenses to things that they don't own a copyright in. And so if someone violates their license, it's like that license is sort of a nullity. It's sort of fake. It doesn't mean anything legally. And so people are going to be – there are going to be people who are angry and confused when what they thought – they thought they were licensing something under Creative Commons and realize they never had a right to license it in the first place because they didn't have an underlying copyright. So – that's going to be a, a layer of confusion that is going to be problematic. Or maybe it turns out that they were licensing the file under Creative Commons, but not the object under Creative Commons. Um, I did this white paper recently all about trying to work through these things because it's complicated. So there's that batch of challenges. And then there's this other batch of challenges. Again, sorry, it's like every answer is, <laughs> and then there's more trouble. Um, the other batch of challenges is. When you think about, let's say it is properly licensed under Creative Commons Attribution. So I upload a file and say, Creative Commons Attribution, do whatever you want. And so if you take the file and you put it on your website and you give me a credit, great. You're complying with that license. Let's say it's a ring and you print it out and you're gonna display it somewhere. So you print it out and display it somewhere and you put a little tag next to it that says, Michael made this, and so you're complying with the Creative Commons license. Great. But if you're going to wear that, that ring around, you aren't going to, like, attach a tag to your ring <laughs> that has that. And so the question of what is a reasonable attribution, this is something that I'm working on right now, and we're working on pulling together some people to think about. So if listeners are interested, let me know just setting up norms and expectations of what does it mean when you say I want attribution for my 3d design you know one answer is it's 3d modeled so you could actually put your name embed your name in it and that's fine but there are plenty of things where that's not the right answer and the right answer to that is really all about community norms and expectations right there's not a not a single right answer that's okay that's right and everything else falls away it's all about that one it's all about what the community expects and that's hard to figure out unless you bring the community together and have a conversation about it and they're going to be differing opinions so it's it's uh it's another challenge in 3d printing ip it's part of what makes my job fun but not necessarily super straightforward (laughs)
0: Well, you know, <laughs> things aren't printed out in a straight line so. right, right. <laughs> um, to kind of bring it to music I've, I've seen sort of prototypes and videos of three d printed records, yeah, and I'm wondering wh- how you feel about those and and if you think that they will sound better ever,
1: <laughs> yeah, well, they're kind of rad, right? so yeah. so there's there's like the double contact, so there're people who are three d printing records, and they're the prints are low resolution, right? In a in a physical sense, right? You know, records are, are all about the physicality and the grooves and the printers that people are using for them just can't replicate them. So they, yeah, they sound kind of muffled and like not great records. The other thing that people do, which is worth mentioning is, you know, a lot of these desktop 3D printers, they have all these different servo motors in them. And so they're figuring out how to program the printers. So the printers, so they sound kind of like the you know the, the the bat computer like and so they're programming them so the printers themselves make can play songs by like running the motors differently it's amazing look it up on the internet it's awesome there was a time where on the early makerbot somebody had a script that converted MIDI files into, into a 3D printable object, which you would never print out. You know, you wouldn't put filament in, but you just run the printer and it would, because it can, you know, it's got, th- it's got three different motors, it's got th- four different motors, but three different motors that are operating at sort of different levels. And so uh, that's pretty cool. And you can find people have orchestras, bot <laughs> orchestras of these. But yeah, the records, yeah, they'll probably get better. You're never going to get a 3D print, 3D printing is good for some things and not so good for other things. I don't think anytime soon that a 3D printed record is going to be better than a press record. (laughs) Of all the industries that should be worried about 3D printing disrupting them, the record industry, I think, is okay. It's pretty safe for now. (laughs) They're kind of, one day they might be as good as those Fisher-Price records. Yeah,
0: that's what it made me think of when I saw the... I saw some of the prototype videos. I was like, "These kind of sound like the music box." Like, (laughs)
1: yeah, (laughs) yeah, but they're not even there, right? Even then, you still better with the Fisher Price (laughs) one. I don't
0: know if I have too many more questions for you. Do you have anything else that you want to talk about while we're here?
1: No, I mean, just that this is, this is. I mean, obviously, I think this is a lot of fun to think about, and Mm -hmm. so much of this stuff because it is in the gray margins of what's going on. The answer will be derived from community norms. And so it's really important for the 3D printing community as a kind of community unto itself to take some time to think about how they want these things to work. Because if and when there's some sort of policy challenge or legal challenge, the people who are trying to solve that will look to see what's happening already. And so being conscientious about how the 3D printing industry and community structures itself will have a huge impact on if and when policy world kind of comes into full contact, how those lines are drawn. And so it matters, even though it's not necessarily the most important thing. The most important thing is the printers and what people are making with them and the people who are coming together around them.
0: This has been super fun.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is great.
0: Yeah, I appreciate it. Radio Free Culture is produced by WFMU and the Free Music Archive and is supported in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts. Our theme song this week is the Spider-Man's Nano Loop by Uncle Bibby and can be found at freemusicarchive.org.